O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Amen. Tonight we focus on Jesus' seven words from the cross in which Jesus does the most incredible thing. He turns the cross into a pulpit. The first word is from Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Last words are important. The last words of many famous people have been recorded through the ages. Some of my favorite happen to be Martin Luther's purported last words on a note found in his pocket. Bettler, we are all beggars. And if we were ever beggars, tonight is the night that we are beggars as we come before the foot of the cross and watch Jesus bleed and die for our sins. You may have a, a special place in your heart for some of the last words of someone you love. But there's no question that the most important and the most precious last words that have ever been spoken were those that came from Jesus from the pulpit of the cross. His first word from the cross was a prayer. That's not surprising because the entire life of our Lord was a life of prayer. What is surprising is the substance of this prayer. He didn't pray for deliverance. He didn't pray for relief as any other person would. Instead, he prayed for those responsible for hanging him on that cross. He prayed for Judas who betrayed him, for the other apostles who abandoned him, for Peter who denied him, for the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, and Pilate who railroaded him. He prayed for the Roman centurion and the Roman soldiers who pounded nails through his hands into that tree. He prayed for them that God would forgive them. But then he says something strange. For they do not know what they are doing. Do not know what they are doing. Of course they know what they're doing. They are mercilessly executing Jesus of Nazareth. What they didn't recognize, what they were ignorant of, is that they were mercilessly executing the Son of God. On account of their blind unbelief, they could not recognize what they were truly doing, committing the most heinous act in human history putting the Son of God to death. So Jesus prays for them. It's interesting, if you look at the Greek, it appears that he's praying for them even as he's laying on his back on that cross and they're pounding the nails through his hands, looking up to heaven, saying, Father, forgive them. He keeps praying that they would be given a second chance that God wouldn't strike them down on the spot for their heinous crime, that they would be given another chance to repent and to come to faith in Him and be forgiven for even this, the blackest sin ever committed. But Jesus isn't only praying for them. He's praying for me, and He's praying for you. As Paul says, He was handed over to death for our trespasses, our sins, our ugly thoughts, our loveless words, our hate-filled actions are just as responsible for hanging Jesus on that tree and keeping Him there as those Roman nails are. Jesus is also praying for us. Tonight, this Good Friday, may 
God, lead us to honestly confess our sins. To come to the foot of the cross sincerely sorry for hanging Him on it. But then to leave. Clinging to the forgiveness that Jesus both prayed for and paid for. Gracious Savior, You did not strike back with revenge against Your enemies as they ridiculed and crucified You, but instead prayed for their forgiveness. In Your compassion, pardon us for our secret sins and sins we do not discern, and enlighten us to know and do Your will. Amen. The second word from Luke 23, verse 43. Jesus said to him, Amen, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. He saved others, the Jewish leaders sneered. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Anointed One. Even the thieves hanging on either side of Jesus from their own crosses joined in this taunt, saying, save yourself, and hey, while you're at it, save us with you, until suddenly one of the thieves had a sudden change of heart. Probably, it was the reality that he confessed that he deserved to be there even though Jesus did not, and the realization that in mere hours he was going to be meeting his maker to be judged for his sins. This humbling reality brought about a sudden change in this thief. He not only rebuked his fellow thief for criticizing, for mocking Jesus, but he also confessed his faith in Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he did something I don't think any of us could dare do. He dared to place himself on Jesus' grace and mercy. He dared to beg him with this one last final gasp of hope. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Who can imagine such a hardened criminal ever asking such a thing? Asking the Holy Son of God to look past all of His, all of his crimes, His life of crime, the horrendous things He had done, to forgive Him for those things, and then to offer Him a place in heaven? It's outrageous! It's beyond belief! would ever think that someone like Hitler or Stalin or Vladimir Putin could ever ask the same thing of Jesus? It's daring to say the least. And yet Jesus rewards this daring faith by promising him, Amen, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This second word from the cross tells us two things, teaches us two lessons. First, that there is no sin so black that Jesus' blood can't cover it. There is no sinner so evil that God's mercy cannot reach out for him. There is nothing that you or I or anyone in this room or anyone in this world have done 
that Jesus' blood doesn't pay for on that cross. Because as Paul says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. But the second thing it teaches us is that there is no salvation by works. Salvation comes only one way, and that is completely by grace. Certainly, obviously, this thief had no good works to present to God to say, look, I deserve to have a place in paradise. He had no righteousness to boast about, and he admitted as much. He threw himself completely on God's grace, on Jesus' mercy, and his righteousness. And that is what we must do too. Now lest we hold this thief up as too much of an example, teaching us that we can go on sinning because as much as we sin, God's grace will increase even more. Lest we think that it's okay for us to push off repentance to take our Christianity, our faith seriously later. We can always do it on our deathbed. He proves it. Remember this. There were two thieves crucified with Jesus that night. One of them was saved by grace. The other was damned for his impenitence and his unbelief. May we never be arrogant when we approach the foot of the cross. But may we always be confident that when we throw ourselves on Jesus' grace, when we make that daring plea to Him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He will answer, Amen, I tell you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Mighty Redeemer, remember us as we walk through the darkest valleys of life and realize that our time on earth is ending. Stay close to us when we feel the pain and loneliness of dying and take away our fears with your certain promise of paradise. Amen. The third word from John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time, this disciple took her into his own home. We can't even begin to imagine how much the sorrow of seeing her son hanging from that tree must have pierced Mary's tortured soul. Here was Jesus who had always been the perfect son, the obedient, the caring, the loving son, the son that every mother wishes she could have, but only Mary got to have. And even here in his dying moments, he takes the time to show one last bit of care and love for his mother, giving, him, giving her a new caregiver, giving her a new son. Sure, she had an inkling of what was coming when she had taken Jesus to the temple 30 years earlier. Simeon had, had told her, and a sword will pierce your heart also. But now here it was, in the flesh. Her son nailed to a tree and she can't bring him down. His life blood draining out drop by drop and she can do nothing 
to stop it. Who can imagine her anguish? One person could. Jesus could. And Jesus did. And in that moment, even as he is suffering under the weight of the sins of the world, he takes the time to show one last bit of compassion for his mother. What does this private moment have to do with us? Well, if you look a little bit closer at Jesus' words, you see that you're there too. Where? Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he had looked over a crowd of his disciples and he said, Who are my mother and my brother and my sister? And then he said, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he and she is my brother and sister and mother. There is immense comfort for us in these private words that Jesus spoke to his mother from that pulpit of the cross. It shows us that Jesus isn't just worried about the magnificent things of this world. He's not just worried about the things that take place in this church. He's not just worried about Holy Week and wonderful hymns and Sunday sermons. He is concerned about the small problems of life. Those minor issues. Those troubles that that you wouldn't even consider bringing to your pastor or your doctor or your spouse, much less to the throne of God in heaven. These words teach us that Jesus truly cares about those little things in life too. There is immense comfort for us here to know that if Jesus could take the time to show love and compassion for his mother one last time, even as he is suffering under the crushing weight of his father's wrath on the cross, he's never going to forget us now that he's reigning in the full glory of heaven. Precious Jesus, you consider us friends and care about the needs of our bodies and souls. Keep us in your care as we walk the road of life and provide the blessings we need to gain safety, contentment, and joy in your service. Amen. The fourth word from Mark chapter 15, verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be blunt, we cannot understand the depth of these words. No matter what the devil may like to tempt us to think, we have never been forsaken by God. In the same psalm, Psalm 22, from which Jesus quoted these words, David wrote this, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you and they were rescued. They trusted in you and they were not disappointed. Believers are never forsaken by God. Neither are unbelievers in this life. Oh sure, people can reject God. They can push away His grace. They can say, I want nothing to do with you. They can forsake God. But as long as a person has life and breath, God has not forsaken or abandoned them. 
When God forsakes someone, He is inflicting on them something that no one in this world has or could ever imagine. There is no discipline, no punishment, no torture that anyone in this world has ever thought up that can compare to being forsaken by God. There is nothing that happened at the Holocaust, nothing that happened in the gulags, nothing that is happening right now in Ukraine that can compare to what happens to a person when they are abandoned by God, separated forever from His love and care. The Bible says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and I don't think that even begins to describe it. But that is where Jesus was when He cried out these words. He was suffering the full wrath of God, the full despair of having God turn His back on Him from the very worst kind of death imaginable, death among the damned in hell, a place God never intended for human beings to go, but intended only for the devil and his demons. And it is at this lowest moment that Jesus cries out those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If there ever was a rebuke to people who take sin lightly, this is it. If there ever was a rebuke to Christians who think that God would never, a loving God would never send anyone to hell, this is it. If there ever was a rebuke to us to think that there are some sins that aren't quite as bad as others, that God can overlook those sins, I don't need to confess those sins, I don't need forgiveness for those sins, I can make up for those sins myself. Jesus' cry from the depths of hell proves us wrong. These are terrifying words. These are horrifying words. No words in the Bible describe the reality of sin and the full fury of God's wrath like these words do. Never take sin lightly because God never does either. But there is also immense comfort in these words. Isaiah reminds us why Jesus was forsaken by God. He says, He was crushed for the guilt our sins deserved. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds, we are healed. Because Jesus was forsaken by God, we never will be. Because Jesus was abandoned by His heavenly Father, we can be certain that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord Jesus, You endured the horrific penalty of our sins and Your Father turned His face from You on the cross. Compel us to see in your sacrifice the dreadful nature of sin and call us to acknowledge the amazing depth of your love. Overcome our shame, dear Savior, and give us grateful faith. Amen. The fifth word from John chapter 19, verse 28. 
After this, knowing that everything had, been, had now been finished and to fulfill the Scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. The fact that a victim of crucifixion would be thirsty is not a surprise. The loss of blood and being hung naked in the scorching midday sun in Palestine would parch any man's lips. And that's exactly what Jesus was. A man. He walked and talked on this earth. He ate and slept and taught just like us. And yet, unlike us, he had just gone through 18 excruciating hours of torture. He had just suffered the torments of hell and his father's wrath. It's no surprise. It's no wonder that he was thirsty. And yet, it is a great and mighty wonder. Jesus didn't have to endure this thirst. The blistering of his lips, the drying up of his tongue and his throat. He didn't have to endure any of this. One of the most cruel taunts that they hurled at him, the crowds did, and the Jewish leaders, was that he saved others, but he can't save himself. Well, it couldn't be farther from the truth. If Jesus had wanted to, he could have come down from the cross like that. He is the Son of God, after all. The same would be true of his scorching thirst. With just a word, he could have summoned a legion of angels with thousands of gallons of cool, fresh water to scorch his burning lips. But, if he had done that, then there would be no forgiveness of sins, there would be no life for us, and no hope of salvation. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was His love for us. And so He stayed there, blistering in the scorching sun, lips cracking and bleeding, crying out with a hoarse voice, I thirst. By His suffering on the cross, Jesus has opened up to us a well of refreshment. A well of refreshment for sinners who are weighed down by sin and guilt. A well of endless grace that we can come to when we just can't get beyond our sins, when when we can't get the words out because we are so ashamed of what we have done. The hymn writer puts it this way. Come to Calvary's holy mountain, sinners ruined by the fall. Here a pure and healing fountain flows to you, to me, to all, in a full perpetual tide opened when our Savior died. May we thirst for the forgiveness that Jesus died to win for us and provides for us right here through these means of grace as just as He suffered thirst to earn it for us. Dear Jesus, as our brother on earth, you endured the agony of pain that besieged your body when your sacrifice was complete. Knowing our experiences, hover over us with your care and compassion when our bodies and hearts are hurting. Provide us with strength that we may confess you with confidence and power. Amen.
The sixth word from John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It was early on the morning of May 7th, 1945, five years, eight months, and seven days after war had been declared with Nazi Germany, it was over. America and her allies had won the war in Europe. Some people are still alive who remember that day. It was about 3 o'clock on, the after, on a Friday afternoon, about 30 A.D. Everyone should remember that day. That is the day when the war that Adam began when he brought sin and death into this world was ended once and for all, and the victory belongs to us. No sooner had the the sponge containing that sour wine been taken away from Jesus' lips, but he shouted with a loud voice, one Greek word, four simple syllables, tetelestai. It is finished. It was the word that the Greeks would write on their invoices to acknowledge that they had been paid in full. But what was finished? What does this mean? means that everything that Jesus had come to do was now complete. He had lived a perfectly obedient life, one that His Father would accept on behalf of an entire world of people like us who have lived nothing but imperfect lives. He had paid the bloody price for every sin that a world of people like us have committed. He had suffered the torments of hell so that people like us wouldn't have to. He had extinguished the wrath of God so that God no longer looks at us with fury, but with love. He had done everything necessary to save a world of sinners. And now everything, even His suffering, was finished. It was over. It was completed. There is nothing more left to do. Nothing more left for anyone to pay. Jesus' victory is your victory. Does your conscience ever haunt you? Sins of the past come back into your mind? Do they keep you up at night whispering into your ear, you're going to have to pay for that evil someday? Jesus says from the cross, no more, it's finished. That sin has been separated as far away from you as the east is from the west. Does the devil convince you that you are still his slave? That you are an addict to sin? That it's just the way you are? That you can't do anything different than sin like you have your whole life? Jesus says, no more. I have set you free. You are liberated. Go out and sin no more. Does the turning of the calendar or the doctor's report or just looking at yourself in the mirror tell you that death is drawing near? Jesus says, no more. I have kicked out the teeth of death and opened up the world, eternal life, light and life and immortality to all who believe. It is finished. His victory is your victory.
Gracious Redeemer, you paid the full price for our redemption and have released us forever from the hold of Satan, the power of sin, and the fear of death. Protect us from the devil's claim that we need to do more and from the accusation of our consciences that we have not done enough. Lead us to place our entire confidence in you and to live our lives secure in your grace. Amen. The seventh word from Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Luke tells us that Jesus shouted these words in a loud voice. That is an important detail. Crucifixion was no ordinary death. Normally, it slowly sapped the strength of its victims so that they would slip into unconsciousness on account of exhaustion or suffocation or blood loss before death came. But Jesus was no ordinary crucifixion. He did not die because he had to. He died because he wanted to. No one took his life from him. He freely gave it up. It was just as he had said earlier in the book of John. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And so now the Son of God, having completed the mission on which his Father sent him into this world commits his spirit into the very hands of that same Father. We are truly treading on holy ground here. How is it that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Creator and Maker of all things, the immortal, the invisible, the only God, how can he die? Many try to rationalize it. And he say, ah, that was just a story. Yeah, maybe he did some miraculous things. Maybe he said some wonderful words. But he was never really God. And his death proves it. Some say that the Spirit of God descended on him sometime during his life, but took off and left him when he died because the human mind cannot process how an immortal God can die. Let us not wander down that path of rationalization or logic because there's only one place that leads and that is to hell. If this was just a man who died on that cross on that first Good Friday, his death was meaningless. We are still in our sins and we're all going to hell anyway. We might as well leave right now because there are many better things we could be doing with this time tonight. But just as when Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and God became man, but He did not cease being God, so here on the cross, Jesus Christ did not cease being God. And because the blood of God stains Calvary's cross, the holy, precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God without any defect, we can be sure that all of our sins are taken away 
and that heaven is now open to us. More than that, right now it means that we can walk out those doors and live without any fear of disease or danger or sickness because our lives and the lives of our loved ones are safe in the powerful hands of Jesus. And when our last hour comes, we can calmly pray, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, confident that because of Jesus, he will receive our souls too. Amen. Loving Savior, at the moment of your death, you gave yourself into the loving hands of your Father. As we close our eyes in death, lead us to commit our bodies and souls to him who has summoned us by name and made us his own because of you and your love. Then we pray, let us depart in peace. Amen.